Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're in a season of being reminded of whether or not this or that promise was fulfilled, and of making promises for the future. But God never forgets His covenant. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Exodus with this sermon entitled The Covenant-Keeping God, which covers Exodus chapter 6, Psalm 106, and 2 Corinthians chapters 3 to 5. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll continue in this series in Exodus and see what God has for us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, O oh God, that you are at work in everything, and you're doing a work of redemption Lord, we, we trust you in that. Some of us come in here this morning and we're tired, we're frustrated, we're, uh, we're just over it all. Lord, would you meet us in a significant way this morning? Lord, others of us are coming in and perhaps maybe not there, but we're bringing in various things as well. There's, there's not one of us, God, as you well know, who's not bringing something in with us this morning that we need to give to you. And so, Father, we pray, would you pour out your Holy Spirit? Would you do a work among us and in us that only you can do? Would you bless the reading and the teaching and the preaching of your word? That it would not return void, but do its work. And would you do that for your glory, O God? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to orient us this morning to this one simple statement, and that is, we are a forgetful people. I am a forgetful person, and I'm hoping that you identify with that. Uh, I forget things so easily. We introduce ourselves to one another, and then we immediately forget our names. Not, I don't forget my name, I forget your name. We've all been in that place where you're in a conversation, you know you've just asked what their name is, they've just told you their name, but you're 30 seconds in and you've already forgotten the name, and then you're too embarrassed to ask again, oh, I'm so sorry, would you, I know I just asked you, but could you tell me your name again? And so then we start a relationship and we don't know their name, and then you get too far down the road and you never ask the name because you're like, I should know by now, and this will be really embarrassing if I don't. We forget each other's names. We forget, uh, when I was in high school, I bet I ate at a, uh, there was a Mexican restaurant down the road from where I grew up that my friends and I, once we were able to drive in high school, we went to all the time. I'm talking, I bet I ate at this place a hundred times. That place was in my memory recently, and for the life of me, I could not remember the name of it. And I ate there so many times. I mean, we were constantly going to La Fiesta, whatever it was, I don't know. Um, but how do I forget that? I ate there so many times. How, how do I forget that name? I'm forgetful in the sense that uh, of experiences in my past that I thought I had learned from, but clearly I haven't. I'm a, I tend to have lived most of my life since, the, since my teenage years with these hypochondriatic cycles where I become convinced I'm dying of something. 
Maybe, maybe that's one of you, and uh, it's, I laugh about it now, but it's not something to laugh about when you think you're dying. I get a weird pain in my side. It's got to be a tumor. You know, like these kind of things where immediately you jump to worst case scenario. And Rachel has been my, my voice of reason and, and, and the one who keeps me steady uh, in the 19 years of our marriage because time and time again, when I get a weird symptom and I start freaking out, she's like, Jeff, you've had this symptom before. We had tests run. Nothing was wrong with you. Do you remember that? Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Most of the time, it's, it's the way anxiety manifests in my body. When I am anxious, I get these weird physical symptoms. It's usually tingly hands and fingers, lightheadedness, racing heart. And I'm telling you, I mean, I've had it probably a hundred times and every time it happens, I'm like, oh, I, I think I'm dying. And she says, you're fine. We've been there. Oh yeah, I forget. And what's my answer? It's always, what if this is the one time that it's something different? But we forget. We're fearful. I mean, fearfulness and forgetfulness go together. And in our fearfulness, we become a people who forget because we see what's right in front of our face. We, we're, like, we're like cars with headlights in the night. We just see what's right in front of us. And all that's out there that we know is there in the daylight, we just go, oh, no. And we freak out and we forget. You know, I told you last week, I talked to you about how we're, in, we're, we're a people of unbelief. And we're also a people of disbelief. And unbelief, as we defined it, was, was I, I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe that what God is telling me he will do. And then disbelief is I can't believe because sure enough, he said he was going to do this and he didn't do it the way that I wanted to and he didn't do it in the time that I wanted him to do it. And then he brought all these other circumstances into my life that I wouldn't have chosen. And so therefore, he didn't, uh, he, he didn't answer me in my unbelief. So now I can't believe I'm just in this place of disbelief. And the, the whole theme of last week was uh, to a people given to unbelief and disbelief, there is a sovereign promise-keeping God who never forgets his covenant and who always proves himself to be faithful, always. So I want to use that same theme this week, but I just want to change it at the front end just a little bit. So we talked last week that to a people given to unbelief and disbelief, there's this God. This week, it's to a people given to forgetfulness. To a people that are given to forgetfulness, there is a sovereign promise-keeping God who never forgets his covenant and who always proves himself faithful. And that's what we're going to see over and over again in the book of Exodus. And it's already beginning in the early chapters of the book. We're going to see in the book of Exodus a people who we're going to shake our heads at at how forgetful they are. We're going to laugh at times as we walk through this story and go, those people are just stupid. How could they forget what God has done? And then God and his Holy Spirit is going to say, that's you. That's you, Jeff. That's how you tend to operate. I want to take us first to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a psalm uh, that was written roughly somewhere probably around 500 years after the Exodus. So it's to all these people who are now on the, uh, the other side of the Exodus. They've been redeemed. They've been brought into the promised land. They now have their own kingdom. And yet again, here they are. They're forgetful. And so he, this, the psalmist is actually reflecting back on the Exodus and recalling two things recalling the habitual faithfulness of God, but also recalling 
the habitual unfaithfulness and forgetfulness of his people in the midst of the exodus. And he's calling us to remember that we are just like the Israelites. This is what he says, the psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 7, reflecting back on the exodus, says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Okay, so we haven't gotten there yet, but, but I'll just go ahead and tell you. Spoiler alert, God's going to deliver his people. And when he does so, he's going to do it in a miraculous way. Ten plagues, that's next, next week, uh, culminating in, in, in the, the, the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, think about this. Big body of water, debate over which body of water it was. We don't know exactly, but we know it was big, and we know that we, you can't swim across it. And so God with the Egyptians coming to the back of his, of his people, opens the waters, and as soon as they get to the other side, they start grumbling. They forget. You just saw sea open. And you've already forgotten of the power and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He's going to drop bread from the sky. And they're going to forget. As soon as they eat, they're going to forget the faithfulness and the goodness of their God. As the psalm continues, you get to verse 12, and verses 8 through 11 show how God met them in their unbelief and in their forgetfulness. And so it says, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. And you go, okay, that's the end of the psalm. They came back around, and, and, and it was finished. They remembered. And then you go, wait. Keep reading, very next verse, verse 13, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Then later in verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. You remember where we left off at the end of chapter 5 last week? At the end of chapter 5, uh, Moses is reeling He's angry, he's frustrated, he's disillusioned, he's in disbelief, as we talked about. And here's why, just a quick recap. Uh, he was happy in Midian. He was happy uh, far away from Egypt as a shepherd on the hillsides of the Sinai Peninsula. He, he was not looking to be a deliverer. He was not looking to be a rescuer of God's people. He, he had a horrible thing happen in his past, and he wanted to stay far away from Egypt. And God shows up in a burning bush on the side, this little hillside at the bottom of Mount Sinai, also in your Bibles called Mount Horeb, same place. And he's in this burning bush. Moses is curious. He goes over. Next thing you know, over the course of the next couple of chapters, God and Moses go back and forth. But ultimately, God is calling Moses to go back to be the deliverer of his people. And he promises him, I will deliver my people through you. I will do it. And I'll bring you into this promised land. And if Moses, which he probably didn't, but if Moses knew his Hebrew Bible, if he knew Genesis, what happened back then, and the Bible had not been written at this point, but if he knew the story oracly of God that he had been passing down to his people, then he would know that all the way back when he made a promise with Abraham, 
at the very beginning of the beginning of the people of God, that right in the midst of the covenant that God is making with Abraham, that Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. Through your seed, all nations will be blessed. But oh, by the way, there's going to be this 400-year period where your generations after you will suffer in slavery, and then I'll deliver them. He, he includes that in the original covenant. But Moses is filled with unbelief and disbelief, but he goes with some minuscule amount of belief and he goes with Aaron and Aaron is his mouthpiece and he carries his staff with him because God's promising him through this staff, I'm going to do great miracles to show my power over the sorcerers of Egypt. And so Aaron and Moses show up in the courts of Pharaoh and they say, the I am, the God of all creation, the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with, yeah, right. He laughs, he mocks them. He says, not only am I not going to let people go, your people go, but I'm going to make it harder for them in their slavery. I'm going to up the ante on how much they have to produce, and I'm not even going to give them the resources to be able to do it. And so by the end of chapter 5, Moses is going, what have you done, oh God? Remember what he said? Right at the end of the chapter, he says, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you, and you, God, he's shaking his fist at God, and you have not delivered your people at all. You have not done what you said you would do. Look at how God responds in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But... But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Remember, Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. God Almighty in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. I've revealed to them myself as El Shaddai, but I have not revealed to them as I have to you, Moses, this, that I am Jehovah Yahweh. Remember, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, there is something happening here, Moses, in the redemptive story that is unique to what's happened thus far. I'm at work here. I'm doing a work of redemption. Be patient. Remember, you're seeing something that even your forefathers haven't seen. And then he says this. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves. Underline this next part, highlight it, mark it, do whatever you need to do, because this is the, th this is the thematic central focus of this week. And he says to him, and I have remembered my covenant. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord 
And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Do you hear all the I wills, all the promises? He says, Moses, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. What I promised Abraham all the way back then, I am promising to you now, I have not forgotten my covenant. I will, I will, I will, I will. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then he continues in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord. He starts his discourse with Moses with, I am the Lord. He ends it with Moses with this, the very same phrase, I am the Lord, as if to say, Moses, remember, you're not. I am. You're not. I am going to do what I said I'm going to do. I will bring about my purposes as I said that I would. I am the sovereign promise-keeping God who never forgets his covenant and always proves faithful. Know that. Don't forget that. And even when you do forget it, I, oh God says, I will never forget. I am the Lord. That's the first point I want you to get. I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to just sear into your brain and into your heart this truth. God never forgets his covenant. Never. If we go back to Psalm 106, you get to the end of the psalm. After the psalmist has spent a lengthy amount of time recalling all the ways in which God's people had not remembered. And then he gets to the end of the psalm, towards the end, verse 44 and 45, and he says, nevertheless, I love when verses start like that. I love when verses start with nevertheless, or but, or therefore, or yet, because it's almost always turning the tables of our unfaithfulness to his faithfulness, our forgetfulness to his remembrance, our inability to his ability, our weakness to his power, all these things that we can't do that he does for us are usually encapsulated in that turning word, nevertheless, or something like that. And so in the midst of the psalm, it's been all about our forgetfulness and unfaithfulness as God's people. Nevertheless, look what it says. He looked upon their distress, and when he heard their cry, for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to his steadfast love. I love how Isaiah says it in chapter 49. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Even a mom may forget that. Yet I will never forget you. I will never forget you. When we say that God never forgets his covenant, what, what covenant are we talking about? What is a covenant? Covenant biblically is way more than a contract. It's way more than an agreement. It's way more than a commitment. Our lives are on the line when we talk about the covenant of God. What this covenant is referring back to, when he tells Moses right here in Exodus 6, when he says, and I remember my covenant, he's referring back to the covenant that I've already alluded to. And here's the quick story on that. God calls this man, this pagan man, this non-God follower out of this land called Ur, which back, back then was what is modern day Iraq. 
And he calls Abram out of Ur and he brings him over to this land that ends up becoming Canaan, which is modern day Israel. And he calls him over to this place so that he can become his God and make him a father of many nations. And he says, he makes a promise in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 15. He says, through you, Abraham, he changes his name to Abraham and he says, through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And he's really getting it. Not only is it going to be generation after generation after generation that will be the people of God marked out for the holiness of God, but he's actually even... Uh, implicitly pointing to one seed of Abraham in particular, one offspring in particular, and that's going to be Jesus. That through Christ, all nations will ultimately be blessed. And he's giving this covenant to Abraham, and it's a significant moment, huge moment in the story of redemption. And here's how he signifies the covenant. This is how God enters into the covenant with Abraham. There's an ancient ritual that was, that was in play back then, at that time, when you were going to enter into covenant with someone, it usually happened over land ownership, where you're going to uh, go into covenant with someone over this land. And usually what that meant was this, is that you were going to d- demonstrate your covenant to that person by doing this. You would say, we're going to take an animal or a series of animals, and we're going to kill them. We're going to pour their blood out on the ground before us, and then we're going to rip them apart and have pieces of the animals along the path on each side to our right and our left. And then we're going to lock arms together, and we're going to walk in between these animals as if to signify, to say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. You can rip me apart. You can destroy me. Can you imagine if that were still in play today? Hey, this business deal, sitting at the conference table. Hey, uh, Jerry, bring me an animal. Pour the blood out on the table, rip it apart. All right, you ready? I I think we keep that commitment. I think we keep that contract. Here's the interesting thing, though. When God entered into the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham in a deep sleep. He put Abraham in a deep sleep and set him over to the side and he walked, God, through, signified through this smoking pot, very mysterious. But this smoking pot, he passes, God passes in between the ripped apart animals. To say this, to say, you're not going to keep the covenant. You can't. But if I don't keep the covenant, I don't keep my promises then rip me apart. God of all creation, myself, rip me apart as this animal has been ripped apart. This is the covenant that God is remembering. He's made a promise to his people that I am your God, you will be my people, and I will redeem you. And he's serious about this covenant. He's so serious, in fact, That we're told in Galatians 3.29 that for those who are in Christ, those who have believed upon Christ, we are now considered the sons and the daughters of Abraham. Meaning the same promise that was given to God's people way back then is now not only given to God's people now, but it's fully fulfilled in Jesus. God is so committed to his covenant. Don't miss this. God is so committed to his covenant that he says... You didn't keep the covenant. 
You never kept the covenant. You continued to be faithful and forgetful. That's the story of God's people throughout all of the biblical stories. And it's our story today. You never kept it. But even though you never kept it, and I was the only one who did, I will still rip myself apart. I will still go to the cross and I will still be ripped apart for you, O unfaithful, forgetful child. And I was faithful, I was not forgetful, but I'll take the blow. What a covenant-keeping God. What a promise-keeping God that he would endure for us the ramifications of the covenant that we didn't keep. so that we could be the sons and the daughters, not just of Abraham, but of God himself. That's the second thing I want you to get. When we talk about this covenant, we have to see and understand that the crescendo of his covenant faithfulness is the cross. I want us to move from four four or 5,000 years ago, Exodus 6, to now. All of these promises have been yes and amen in Jesus. There is no fulfillment of the covenant. There is no good news for us if there is no cross. I want to take you to a place in the New Testament that connects us back to Exodus even again. You know, when I talk about favorite chapters in the Bible, I feel like I just have so many. The more we study the Bible, the more we're like, oh, that's my favorite. And then you read another part, oh, I think that's my favorite. And then you read another part, you go, oh, good. oh goodness, that, those are my favorite. And then you realize it's all good. It's all powerful and significant. It's the word of God. But understanding that, I'll submit to you this morning that three of my favorite chapters in the Bible are 2 Corinthians 3 through 5. I want you to promise me that at some point this week, you're going to read 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. And just say, oh, Holy Spirit, would you teach me? In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is reflecting back on the Exodus story. Now, he's reflecting back to a part of the story that we're not going to get to for a while. And in fact, we're going to do part two of the Exodus series next year. And so it won't be until then that we get to where he's reflecting back on. But he's thinking back to what's recorded for us in Exodus 33 and 34. And in Exodus 33 and 34, uh, we're back at Mount Sinai. You remember? Okay, follow the story with me. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai, Mount Oreb, when the burning bush happened and when God first called him. Now we're to a point in the story where we're back at that same mountain, but this time, it's not just Moses, it's a whole host of people who are with him now. The Israelites, probably tallying over a million people, are now at the base of this mountain. And, and it's not just a little burning bush now that's happening on this mountain. It's that the whole mountain at the top is being enveloped by the presence of God manifested in fire and smoke and rumbling and thunder. And the people are at the base of the mountain and they're terrified because they're going, I don't want any part of that. That's, that's freaking me out. And Moses goes up as the mediator to the top of the mountain. And he goes up as the mediator to the top of the mountain to behold the glory of God and receive the Ten Commandments. And that beholding of the glory of God is so minuscule in what Moses actually got to experience. 
He, it actually says that Moses asked, can I see your glory? Can I behold your glory? And God knows that if he shows the fullness of his glory, the face of his glory to Moses, that Moses will die. That you can't be in the presence of holiness as a sinner and live through it. And so what God does is this. is He says, okay, I'll put you in the, this little cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. What in the world does that look like? And then he puts him into the cleft. And then he passes by him and removes his hand at the last millisecond. So Moses gets a glimpse glimpse of the backside glory of God. And just this little millisecond of glory causes Moses, when he comes off the mountain, he's glowing. His face is glowing, reflecting the glory of God. That's when we talk about glory, we don't know how to define it, but it's, it's a picture that we get that there's something about the presence of God that transforms us. And Moses is now reflecting this transformational glory, and he only got just a little millisecond of the glory of God. Here's the thing. Where are we going in 2 Corinthians? Paul's remembering back to that, and here's what Moses had to do. Moses had to put a veil over his face because they were going, hey, that's freaking me out too. Can you cover that up? And so this is what Moses, this is what uh, Paul says about Moses. He says, Moses came off the mountain and he had to put a veil over his face. And so now Paul's making this analogy that that's all of us, that every single one of us have a veil over our face. He says this, verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for, did, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Okay, if you didn't follow any of that, I know I'm hitting a lot, check in with me here. Verse 16 says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Who is that? The image of God that we talked about in a previous series from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Here's the point. The point is this, there is no hope for us to see what we're supposed to see about God, about us, about life, about meaning, about purpose, about anything that we were created for unless there's the cross. There's only one place that the veil is lifted. lifted. There's only one thing that causes us to be a people who have no ability to, to remove the veil, the veil of darkness, the veil of sin, the veil of tyranny, the veil, the veil of oppression that sin causes, all of the things that keep us in the dark, that keep us from seeing the glory of God. Through belief in Jesus, the veil is removed. And we see. And what is it that we see? Look at chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What do we see? We see the fullness of the glory of God. Moses got this, the millisecond backside glory of God through Christ, through the cross. We see the fullness of the glory of God in his face. Because here's what we have to understand. Moses ascended a mountain as the mediator of God's people so that he could behold the glory of God. Jesus ascended a different mount as the mediator of God's people 
not to behold the glory of God, but to receive the wrath of God. The very wrath that you and I deserve. Why? Don't miss this. Why? So that we don't have to hide our faces from him anymore. So that we come into his presence fully as we are. Redeemed. Accepted. Forgiven. Cleansed. Made new. Declared righteous. Everything that's true of Jesus is now through belief in Jesus true of us. And that's only, only possible through the cross. Where Jesus began a new covenant. Remember the night before he was betrayed? Scripture says that he took the third cup, the cup of redemption. He took this wine and he held it up and he told his disciples, I'm changing Right here in your presence, I'm changing a 2,500-year-old or a 1,500-year-old tradition. You've taken this cup of the Passover that we'll teach on here in a couple of weeks. You've taken this cup of the Passover to remember back of how God delivered his people from Egypt. Now take this cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. So now I don't want you to remember back to the Passover. I want you to remember the cross. With every little smidgen of blood that I drip from the cross as I get ripped apart like those animals, it's for you. It's so that you don't have to hide your face anymore. It's so that you can actually experience what you were created for, which is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you know what happens? What happens when we embrace the cross, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? He comes and dwells within us. As you continue to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that we are a people who are afflicted, who are, who are crushed. Uh, well, actually, let me read it because I don't want to misread it. I'm actually saying we're not those. I'm saying those things. We're actually not those things. He says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because there was one who was crushed for us. Because there was one who was put into despair for us. Because there was one who was forsaken for us. We don't have to be those things because of the cross. And what happens is he now dwells within us to where, as verse 10 says, we always carry around in the body, in us, the death of Jesus. We carry around with us the cross, marking us out as different people so that as we go out into the world, we're uniquely different. We don't have to be fearful like the rest of the world is. We don't have to panic like the rest of the world is. Why? Because we know the promise-keeping God. And the same God that said, I will deliver you from Egypt, is the same God who said, I will deliver you from your sins, is also the same God that says, I will come again and make all things new. He's always kept his promises. So when the world is unraveling all around us, we are a people that go, I know who my God is. I don't freak out. I don't panic. I don't lose my mind. I don't tear people down around me for the sake of political gain. I don't do it. Why? Because I'm a person of the cross. 
I'm set apart. I'm different. I don't act like other people act, not because I'm better than them, but because I realize that Jesus has done a work in me that is the hope for the world. And so I'm different. I'm set apart. Listen, I got to talk to you about this. One of the ways in which we're different, 2 Corinthians chapter four, uh, 5 says that uh, we are now controlled by the love of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 14, it says, and now the love of Christ controls us. And we go, ooh, control. I don't know if I like that word. That sounds, sounds robotic, but that's the word. That's the word in the Greek is that we're not just compelled. That might be your translation, not a bad translation, but it's not getting at the core. We're controlled by the love of Christ as people of the cross. In, chap- in Titus, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. In Titus chapter 3, Paul's recounting this gospel. He's recounting to Titus, and he's, he's asking Titus, he sent Titus to plant a church in the midst of, of crazy uh, cultural unrest and paganism. And he's, and he's teaching him, he's, he's, treat, he, he's uh, uh, admonishing him, this is how you are to plant this church, and this is what we're to be about as people of the cross. And after he's recounted the gospel in beautiful language in chapter 3, This was the first application he gave Titus, the first one. As someone who's indwelt by the Spirit of God, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He's saying, look, we're different. We're a people of the cross. In chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, it says that we're new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. When the cross transforms us and we, we are brought into this new life in Jesus, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And we're going to keep being forgetful because that's who we are in our sinful nature as we struggle in this life. But by God's grace and by his working in us, we'll forget less. Inch by inch, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I was at a football game a couple weeks ago. And we were sitting with some friends, a high school football game. We are sitting with some friends at we spent a lot of time with, and they had, a, they had their youngest son with them who's there to watch his older brother play. But this little boy, four or five years old, he could not care less about the game. He was not interested at all in what was going on in that field. He's playing all around the bleachers, and I'm watching him laugh. His laugh is contagious. He's crawling all over mom and dad and other people, and it's fun to watch. But all of a sudden, Something grabbed his attention. He started hearing a drum beat. And he looked to the field and he sees these people all in the same uniform marching out onto the field. And he sees and hears this drum beat and he perks up. And then he watches them go out onto the field and the horns start to play and they start marching in formation and making these different cool designs. And 
And he never took his eyes off the field, and he was completely mesmerized and captivated. I'm not even watching the band. I'm watching him. He's sitting right down here to my right, and he is transfixed on what's happening on the field. And as I'm watching him, the Holy Spirit, just as he does, not in an audible voice, but just in that still sense within our spirit, I sense him saying to me, would you look at the cross the way he stares at the band? Would you find in the cross all of the mesmerizing joy that it is. I mean, I'm telling you guys, this was him. For 10 straight minutes. Never moved. I'm not sure he blinked. May we, in a spiritual sense, be a people who stare at the cross. Our hope, our salvation, our reminder that God is a God who keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. He never forgets his covenant. And he always, always proves himself faithful. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that when we find ourselves in a place of fear, of forgetfulness. Lord, even in places of unreasonableness, of irrationality, whatever it may be, Father, fix our eyes on the cross. Remind us, O Lord, of who you are that you are so faithful to the covenant that you ripped yourself apart so that we could draw near. Oh, Lord, press deep into us even now as we sit here before you the joy that sits before us in the person of Jesus. Drown away all fears. Make us a unique and set-apart people. Make us a people of the cross. And do so for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.